وبعد فالتاريخ والأخبار فيه لنفس العاقل اعتبار وفيه للمستبصر استبصار كيف أتى القوم وكيف صاروا يجري على الحاضر حكم الغائب فيثبت الحق بسهم صائب وينظر الدنيا بعين العقل ويترك الجهل. So in the few short weeks since we launched Islamic History X and the subsequent first episode, the reaction we've gotten back has been phenomenal. From the positive feedback to the constructive criticism to the excitement about the project overall. It's been a real joy for us to see that. It gives us new purpose. It shows us that what we're doing is seen as beneficial and meaningful. And it acts as a catalyst that motivates us to continue to produce quality content. This, like we said, was no easy undertaking. It required a lot of hard work, hours and hours of research, writing, drafting, revising, editing, recording. And we don't get paid to do this, right? We have day jobs. We go to school. We have families. But all of that becomes worth it when you see the fruits of your labor. And you know that other people are also enjoying that. So that is what makes this work so vital and fulfilling. The majority of the feedback we got last week was centered around getting to know the host better. So I'll do like the Cliff Notes version of an intellectual biography, just very briefly. I, like many young Muslims in the West, attended school Monday through Friday. But when the weekend rolled around, I would hop in the family minivan and head over to the masjid to attend madrasa. Now, that's Dukshi for my East Africans and Dara for my West Africans and everything in between for the rest of you. Upon completing the Qur'an around age 13 or 14, I enrolled in the Ma'had, an institute of higher Islamic learning for study beyond the Qur'anic foundation. Here I studied tafsir, the art of interpreting the Qur'an, advanced Arabic grammar, or nahwa, morphology, or sarf, the hadith corpus, starting with the two most authoritative works, the work of Imam Bukhari and the work of Imam Muslim, commonly called the Sahihain, the fiqh of Imam Shafi'i, starting with the primers and moving my way up eventually. Hashtag Shafi'i squad stand up. Upon completing the foundational coursework, I began to attend different halaqat or learning circles in my hometown and in nearby cities and states. It was here where I expanded the breadth of what I was exposed to. Arabic poetry, for which my love has never waned. Mantiq, the science of logic and reasoning. Balagha, the art of rhetoric. So on and so forth. I was guided in this endeavor by a handful of learned men and women to who I am eternally grateful. Chief among them, my first teacher, Sheikh Abdurazak Hashi. And our two Sayyids, Sheikh Walid Idris Al-Manisi, and Sheikh Tariq Awadullah. Eventually, that journey led me to the country of Morocco, where I enrolled at Dar al-Hadith al-Hassaniyah in the city of Rabat. Here I researched the commentary tradition on a work by Imam Abdul Ghani al-Maghdisi called Al-Kamal fi Asma' al-Rijal, which is a biographical dictionary of the narrators in the six books of the Sunnah. This was really an exercise in how to buff up my research chops and alhamdulillah, living in Morocco is also a, a lovely experience, one that I cherish to this day. So that's where my passion for history comes from, more or less. Like I said, it's a subject matter I've always been very invested in, and now I get to share that semi-regularly with a very dedicated and active listenership, which has been admittedly pretty great. I hope that was an adequate introduction 
and you feel that you know me just a little bit better now. Let's get into it. On the last episode, we introduced the concept of Asabiya, or group solidarity, and its pioneer, the polymath Ibn Khaldun. This week, we'll work to understand the role of Asabiya in theory versus practice, and the role of disease in accelerating societal decline. But in order to do that, we first need to get familiar with the hero of the story, Ibn Khaldun. Abu Zayd Abdul Rahman ibn Muhammad ibn Khaldun al-Hadrami was born in Tunis, capital of modern-day Tunisia, in May of 1332. But in those days, it was the seat of the Hafsids of Tunis. The Hafsids were descendants of the Intata, an Amazigh tribe that had served the Al-Muhidun, an Amazigh tribal confederation that had conquered much of North Africa and Iberia in the late 11th and 12th centuries. In this era, the Maghrib was divided into more or less three factions. The Marinids in the far Maghrib, or the western Maghrib, and their capital at Fez. The Bani Abdul Wad, also called the Zayanids, in the central Maghrib, and their capital at Tilmisan. And lastly, the Hafsids, in the eastern Maghrib, and their capital at Tunis. Now, I've thrown around the word Maghrib a lot, and I'm not talking about the evening prayer. Rather, it's a term that came into use during the expansion period, in the early days of Islam. And in those days, it meant Egypt as far as Alexandria. But as the empire continued to grow, so too did the domain of what was called the Maghrib. Today, it generally refers to North Africa, with a particular focus on the lands of Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. These states were constantly shrinking and expanding, as each of these factions sought to control their neighboring state whenever they found strength, a window of opportunity, or a willing Christian ally. Think of it as the North African Game of Thrones, shifting alliances, court entry, night raids, public executions as entertainment, Generally, some fairly dark stuff. Now, the Muslim East wasn't much better off either. The Crusades and Mongol incursions had wrought havoc across much of Mesopotamia, the Levant, and Central Asia. Dynastic fracture was really the word of the day in this period. In any case, what interests us here is the position of Ibn Khaldun and his family. Who were they? What kind of life did they lead? And what role did they play in the socio-political arena of the Maghrib, if any? To start, the Banu Khaldun, right, the clan confederation, claimed descent from the companion Wa'il ibn Hujr, who in the days before Islam was a king in the lands of Yemen, particularly Hadramaut, hence the moniker Al-Hadrami. He had come to accept Islam at the head of a delegation of the notables of Yemen, Ibn Abdul Barr and Ibn Hibban both record that at the conclusion of this delegation, the Prophet ﷺ praised him and prayed for his success and the success of his descendants, something Ibn Khaldun is keen to highlight in his works. In any case, the descendants of Wa'il ibn Hujr were not long for Arabia. They sought to seek their fortunes in the ever-expanding empire of Islam, and in the 8th century, they immigrated from the Hijaz into Spain at the onset of the Muslim conquest of Iberia. 
over time, the Banu Khaldun made themselves indispensable to the ever-rotating masters of Iberia and North Africa. They became a wealthy and politically prestigious family due to their long history of political and military service to the Umayyads of Cordoba and then later on to the Al-Murabitun and the Al-Muhidun. Two Amazigh dynasties that had come into power following the collapse of the Caliphate of Cordoba during the early reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula from Islamic rule in the mid-13th century. The Banu Khaldun had once again found themselves on the road and looking for new masters, this time with the Hafsids of Tunis. Now at this point, the Banu Khaldun's Arab and Amazigh pedigree had begun to mix, right? They'd been intermarrying for a few generations at least. But they still maintained their prestige, right, as descendants of a companion and also as administrators and wazirs and, and whatnot. Their star had risen and this had cemented them firmly in the elite for nearly three centuries. And when they made the journey among the other Andalusian expats to Tunis, they were welcomed warmly and readily. In short, it was our subject's great-grandfather, Abu Bakr ibn Khaldun, who led the family to new heights. He served as vizier to the Hafsid Amir, who had at this point declared himself independent of the old masters, right, the Al-Muwahidun. As is the case with politics, a quick rise sometimes means a quick demise. And he was put to death when another upstart, Ibn Abi Imara, decided to rebel against the Hafsids this time. He conquered Tunis, but only very briefly, and was routed not long after. Ibn Khaldun's grandfather spent much of his life fighting the rebels who had killed his father, and he engaged in court intrigue. Eventually, he decided, this is not the path I want for myself, and he withdrew from public life to focus on the spiritual. His son, also named Muhammad, and this is Ibn Khaldun's father, he had no such political interests, and he devoted his life from its inception to the study of Islam something he instilled in his son at a very young age. So Ibn Khaldun was born into the upper crust of society. His forefathers had been kings, administrators, viziers, but his recent history, it seemed, was steering him down a path towards the life of a scholar. And so it would become. His early life was dominated by scholarship. He memorized the Qur'an from a young age and studied the sciences of the Arabic language at the hands of the most senior teachers during that period. You have to remember, Tunis had gone from a small backwater to the seat of a kingdom, right? That was home to many of the Muslim East's best and brightest. He studied the science of Hadith, Maliki law, and he also received a well-rounded education in math, logic, and philosophy. His teachers included the chief Maliki judge, Muhammad ibn Abdul Salam, his father, Muhammad al-Hadrami, and the mystic, Muhammad ibn Ibrahim al-Ibili, a scholar who had been profoundly influenced by the thought of Fakhreddin al-Razi and Ibn Sina. He was also a serious philosopher in his own right. The next 23 or so years of his life would be spent in a series of political schemes of one type or another. He would go on to serve the Marinids in Fez, in this regard, he was relatively successful, but not nearly enough for a man of his pedigree. His political maneuvering ran him afoul of the emirs on more than one occasion, and this got him tossed in the big house numerous times. 
almost 22 months during his longest stint. Eventually, he and his plotting will lead him to be exiled from the Maghrib to Al-Andalus. In Al-Andalus, he would be received warmly by our friend from the last episode, Lisan al-Tin ibn al-Khatib, and his liege lord, the Nasir Muhammad al-Khamis. These two men, Ibn al-Khatib and Ibn Khaldun, would quickly go on to form a deep and meaningful friendship, one that would sour for a number of reasons, but more on that later. The Andalusians had both been exiles in Fez for some time, guests of the Marina Sultan Ibrahim ibn Ali, following a coup where the emir was ousted by his half-brother Ismail. Unfortunately for Ismail, traitors never live long, and he would soon see why. Ismail was seen as a weak and ineffective ruler, and the wolf smelled blood. This time the wolf in question being his brother-in-law and first cousin, called Muhammad al-Barmejo, or the Red, on account of his reddish hair and fair skin. The story goes that al-Barmejo's men surrounded the emir, who hid in the high tower in the palace. He surrendered quickly and said, instead of the standard head chopping, you know, the type that usually follows coups, I volunteer as tribute to live in seclusion as a hermit. But al-Barmejo was the man on a mission. He took him barefooted and bareheaded to a dungeon for common criminals where he was executed fairly promptly. His head was cut off and thrown to the people. Next, Al-Barmejo found Ismail's younger brother, Khais, still a child, and executed him as well. Both of their bodies were dumped in the public square, covered only with rags. As soon as his ministers recovered his body and buried him the next day, they were also executed as well. But our friend Al-Barmejo too was not long for this world. He got involved in a series of inter-Christian conflicts called the War of the Two Peters, fought between the King of Peter of Aragon and Peter of Castilla. While he was embroiled in this wholly unnecessary conflict, Muhammad al-Qamis, the once exiled emir, pounced on his opportunity to reclaim his kingdom. He left Morocco and captured the all-important port city of Malaga in southern Iberia. This was the first step in his bid to retake Granada, the capital of his ancestors. Our friend Al-Barmejo, unfortunately, backed the wrong side in this conflict and was now fighting a war on three fronts. He was run out of his young capital and fled to Peter of Castilla, then based at Seville. Now, Peter was nicknamed the Cruel, and why that was would become increasingly clear to our fellow in good time. Like, honestly, how do you think this story is going to end? Al-Barmejo, now stuck between a rock and a hard place, said, Look here, pal. Allow me to rule Granada as a vassal. Or, if you're not feeling that, allow me to go into exile overseas. Does that sound familiar? I think the kids call that irony. Peter says, let me think it over. But he allows Al-Barmejo and his party to stay in the city's Jewish quarter, near the palace, as royal guests. Peter says, let me think it over. But he allows Al-Barmejo and his party to stay in the city's Jewish quarter, near the palace, as royal guests. A few short days later, and true to his name, the king strikes. He arrests the whole lot of them. After a feast that he held in their honor, he imprisoned the entire retinue in Seville shipyard and seized the riches they had brought with them. These were the riches they had carted off from Granada, not one or two gold bars or diamonds, the entire royal treasury. The next morning, the usurper was let out on a donkey to a field. This is the ultimate sign of disrespect right towards the king. He was tied to his stake, 
and personally executed by Peter. His entire retinue of courtiers were either executed on the spot or given poison to make the process more efficient. His head was then sent to Muhammad al-Khamis, who at this point had taken back Granada and was welcomed with open arms by his people. Peter later justifies his killing of the usurper by saying that his involvement in the war between Castilla and Aragon had weakened his position in Iberia at large, and this was his punishment for that. The chroniclers say that this was really for one of two reasons, to seize the immense wealth that had been stolen by the usurper or to appease Muhammad al-Qamis as a sign of good faith. In any case, the usurper was dead, Peter was on his way, and Muhammad al-Qamis was back in Granada in his rightful spot as Amir. Now, treason has a funny way of catching up with you. Five short years later, Peter fought another violent civil war, this time with his illegitimate half-brother Henry. It didn't go so good for him this time. He lost and was personally executed by Henry. Now, Henry didn't just execute him. He beat him to death first. He was then left to rot in the field for five days. All of his enemies, and he had made quite a few, made it a point of coming and mocking his corpse as it rotted there. There's a lesson here, somewhere, I'm sure of it. I was not kidding when I said this was a real-life Game of Thrones. Often as Muslims, and I'm speaking to the Muslims here, we tend to romanticize the Muslim period in Spain. And while it was admittedly a great time of learning, intellectual growth, and cross-cultural exchange between Muslims, Christians, and Jews, it was also a deeply violent, chaotic, and turbulent time. Kings dropped like flies. Wars ravaged the countryside. Famines were commonplace. And on any given day, you could be paying taxes or tribute to a new master, one who was often crueler than the last. We need to be actively cognizant of the reductionism of nostalgia. Nothing blurs the lines between truth and fiction like the rose-tinted glasses of the good old days. And those are massive air quotes for you guys. Our hero Ibn Khaldun, remember, was very politely exiled from the Maghrib around this time. And he made his way to the court of his friends, the once exiled but now triumphant Muhammad al-Khamis, and the poet and vizier Lisanuddin ibn al-Khatib. He enjoyed good relations with both on account of his kind treatment of the Andalusians during their stay in the Maghrib. And they in turn honored him with gifts, land, and positions in the court. They even sent him as an emissary to the kingdoms of Castile and Leon. Things soured when Ibn al-Khatib began to resent the close and intimate relationship that the North African enjoyed with his patron, the Emir Muhammad al-Qamis. Ibn Khaldun was something of a wonder kid, and the Andalusians flocked to him like moss to a flame. Ibn Khatib, the decorated poet, man of culture, statesman, vizier, he quite obviously did not appreciate this North African upstart encroaching on his territory. Ibn Khaldun, the ever-shrewd politician, master of intrigue, observes that he felt a certain coolness emanate from Ibn al-Khatib's face, a reservedness, one not used for close friends. Our guy put two and two together very quickly and fearing for his life, because this was totally a thing back then, right? One wrong look could mean a death sentence. He politely petitioned the Emir to allow him to return to North Africa. 
the Amir was generally hesitant to let this new crown jewel go. But a little bit of flattery and a good excuse go a long way. Ibn al-Khatib personally signed off on his travel documents. Sweet victory at last. Or so he thought. Ibn al-Khatib did not really enjoy this victory for long. Are you guys seeing a common theme here? During his tenure as wazir, Ibn al-Khatib had made some really powerful enemies. Men he had sidelined, men whose careers he had ruined, the brothers of men he had killed. This time his enemies were in very high places. The high judges Al-Sabti and Al-Nubahi and the poet Ibn Zamrak, who likely coveted Ibn al-Khatib's position as prime minister. Because in those days, you could totally be both a court poet and a prime minister. They accused him of heresy and not praying the obligational prayers, and his enemies ran him out of Granada in the year 1371. Ibn al-Khatib would go on to die in a Moroccan jail three years later, assassinated by agents sent from Granada, likely with the knowledge of his patron, Muhammad al-Qamis. There's definitely a lesson here. It's really no surprise that Ibn Khaldun then develops this robust idea of solidarity, rise and decline, seeing as on any given day, he himself was living through one stage or another. And this is really highlighted by his living in these volatile times, right? In any case, now that we've situated Ibn Khaldun in his social, intellectual and political context, it's a deeply chaotic, volatile world. Let's take a deeper dive into his theorizing about group solidarity. Here I'm drawing on the Khaldunian framework as expanded on by the late Dr. Muhsin Mahdi, a leading Arabist and philologist of the last century. He taught at both U Chicago and Harvard for many years, and his work on the Muqaddimah is foundational even today. He observes that Asibiya, as envisioned by Ibn Khaldun, has three fundamental stages. Stage one, the early stage, or the birth stage, characterized by a sentiment of Asibiya that's really strong, right? And its goal is to fulfill fundamental necessities, expansion, conquest, survival, growth. The second stage is called the civilized stage, characterized by the emergence of a system of government that produces a ruling class separate from the population, right? Bureaucrats, technocrats, emirs, kings, princes, a military infrastructure, more formal than the nomadic structure, right, from the, the first stage. And they become wealthy, right? And consequently, it weakens the sense of group solidarity, the asabiyya among its people. And lastly, the decline and fall stage, caused by expansion and prosperity and the weakening of the overall asabiyya, which then leads to social, political, and economic collapse. How does Ibn Khaldun's theory hold up, right, if we're to look at it critically? In his own time, at least, this was an observable phenomenon. And his theorizing mirrors closely the rise and the fall of many of the dynasties and kingdoms of the Maghrib and Al-Andalus. Here's a quick case study. The aforementioned Al-Murabids, or the Al-Murabitun, had been a nomadic movement, a brotherhood of religiously minded warriors. They had swept out of the Sahara and founded the great city of Marrakesh. Over time, they had become the masters of the Maghrib. This firmly places them in stage two, right? The trap of sedentarism. Ibn Khaldun suspects that the shift from nomadic warriors to sedentary administrators had loosened their sense of asabiyya and made them vulnerable, right? 
to yet another group, this time the Al-Mawhads, or the Al-Mawhidun, the Unitarian movement, who like their predecessors were warriors and nomads. But once they knocked those guys off, right, they became comfortable and were soon replaced themselves by yet another warrior nomad movement, the Marinids. Are you starting to see a pattern here? You get the point. Hustle up, boss up, get complacent, get taken over. Fairly cut and dry stuff. And the very word that Ibn Khaldun uses, right, for civilization is Umran, an Arabic word which denotes settled or, or you know, sedentary, people who are not nomadic. So the concept of eventual decline due to the shift from a lively nomadic arranging culture or communities to settled urban decay is built in, which is to say that no empire will last and the sun will eventually set on every kingdom, state, and nation, so on and so forth. Now with that in mind, what role does disease play? Or in this case, a pandemic? And this seems especially topical since we are living through a global pandemic ourselves where it seems the very foundations of the nation state Right, this model of governance is on its last legs due to the inefficiency of governments across the world and their inability to respond to COVID-19 effectively. Oh, sorry. That's just America? <laughs> no, just kidding. But seriously, what can our subject Ibn Khaldun inform us about in this regard? Now, the Muslim world in Ibn Khaldun's day was in dire straits, as evidenced by we've already covered. Beyond the Maghrib, Egypt was in disarray. Different Mamluk factions fought for control of the state. The Abbasid Caliph was little more than a puppet, paraded out when necessary. Mesopotamia had become the playground of competing Turkic and Kurdish emirs, each vying for the smallest slice of independence from the ever quarreling Mamluks. The Muslims had lost much of their footholds in the European Mediterranean. They had been effectively removed from Sicily, Spain had been in decline for at least two centuries as the petty Taifa kingdoms lost more and more territory due to infighting. And this emboldened the Spaniards to push southward. Soon, all that would remain of Muslim Spain would be Granada, and by the late 1400s, even that would be lost. The Reconquista had caused a massive surge of refugees to flow into the cities of North Africa, cities already ravaged by famine, factional infighting, and the incursions of the Bedouin Arab tribes, namely the Banu Hilal and the Banu Sulaim, a century earlier. They had laid waste to much of Egypt and the Jazeera, destroying the historic city of Qairawan in 1057, so much so that it never regained its former glory. And their influx was a major factor into the spread of nomadism in an area where agriculture had previously been dominant. Add this to the challenge of the Black Death, the deadliest pandemic ever. It killed an estimated 75 to 200 million people over the course of only eight years. It would take the cities of Europe and North Africa nearly 200 years to regain their pre-Black Death population. Al-Maqrizi, the Egyptian historian, records that when the plague made its way to Cairo in the year 1348, 
the Nile became so choked with corpses, it ceased to flow in some places. Now, this is likely hyperbole, but even so, Cairo had the most advanced hospital network in the world at the time. Now, what does Ibn Khaldun say about all this? And this is a direct quote from the Muqaddimah. Civilization in both the East and the West was visited by a destructive plague which devastated nations and caused populations to vanish. It swallowed up many of the good things of civilization and obliterated them. It overtook dynasties in their time of senility when they had reached the limit of their duration. It lessened their power and curtailed their influence. It weakened their authority. Their situation approached the point of annihilation and dissolution. Great cities and monuments were laid to waste. Settlements and mansions became empty. The tribes grew weak. Indeed, the entire inhabited world changed. It was as if the voice of existence had called out for oblivion and the world had responded to its call. Imagine being in these shoes. Remember, Ibn Khaldun had lost both of his parents and the vast majority of his teachers, friends, and colleagues to the Black Death at the age of 18. He had seen firsthand as an administrator the human toll of the disease, the refugee crisis it exacerbated, the food insecurity it had caused. Imagine being in these shoes. Remember, Ibn Khaldun had lost both of his parents and the vast majority of his teachers, colleagues, and friends in this plague at the age of 18. And he had seen firsthand as an administrator the human toll of this disease. How it destabilized already precarious states, the refugee crisis it created, the food insecurity it had caused. It's no wonder he looked back and said, it seems the world is coming to an end. At the same time, however, Ibn Khaldun recognizes that there is something utterly unique about the catastrophe of the Black Death, namely the chaos that had emerged in its wake, right? A new world, a decisive break with the past. And this sets the stage for a new beginning. He's very optimistic about this. He says, and this is his shrewd observation, right? That world-shattering shifts like this are rare. They're a breaking continuity, a radical rapture that ushers in a new age. These are uncharted waters. If anything, there's an air of optimism in his thinking, right? And he says, when there is a general change of conditions, it is as if the entire creation has changed and the whole world had been altered, as if it were a new and repeated creation, a world brought into new existence. And this is a strong tie-in to his philosophy of history. Since the old world was gone, effectively killed off by the Black Death, so too should the antiquated historical writing and thinking of that period also die. No more copy and pasting the annals written by the preceding scholars and slapping the word history on them. Rather, this new world demanded a new type of historical work, one that was dynamic, one that considered both the seismic shifts caused by the collapses of kingdoms and the havoc of disease, but also one that incorporates the smaller ripples of human movement, right? The exchange of ideas, the cyclical rise and fall of a people due to Asabiya, fortune shining on them only if for a moment, and then when they lose their spot in the sun, a new, more vigorous and energetic people taking that spot. All of these ideas, 
these currents, these motions, they shape the world of our, of our subject in the Khaldun. And his impact on the field of history is felt even today. Even if he didn't always get it right, even if there were gaps in his understanding, it was still a really innovative, forward-thinking, progressive way of looking at the world, and one that even now, right, posterity remembers him for. We are living in admittedly difficult times. Fires burn across the world. In this moment, late October of 2020, the pandemic is still raging. The global economy is in shambles. Any semblance of normalcy, whatever that means, is non-existent. There is this perpetual feeling of dread that follows you day in, day out. This idea that the following day will be more volatile and violent than the last. Now, we all draw our strength from different sources. Some in our faith, others in our convictions, our families, our loved ones. Difficult times are made easier by leaning into those who love you and hold you dear. And we need a lot more of that. Perhaps this is a test of our asabiyah, our group solidarity. Will we, or rather can we, rise to the challenges of our time? Seven centuries ago, a man looked, likely, at a world on fire, a world far less connected than ours is, and he thought to himself, hopefully, tomorrow is a new day. I think we need more of that as well. We hope you enjoyed the second episode of Islamic History X as much as we enjoyed producing and writing it for you. It's heavy stuff, but still, a ton of fun. Sound off on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, anywhere you follow us, really, with any comments, thoughts, feedback, suggestions, uh, what you want to see more of, even. We love keeping the conversation going, and interacting with all of you is always a pleasure. Another shout-out to our wonderful producer, Ian Thompson. Man, the myth, the legend. He's the GOAT. That concludes our episode, inshallah. We'll see you guys really soon.